2: shaping up to be one of the most challenging years ever uh, for analysts to come to concrete predictions for. Uh, Doug Ramsey, CIO of the Luthold Group, just came out with their new green book of market research. and It's it's an extensive book of uh, forecasts and expectations for the year ahead. Doug, just from the outset, how difficult was it for you and your team to come up with a base case scenario for next year?
3: Uh, well, the the issue, uh, Lisa, I guess, with uh, coming up with a, a forecast at this point in the cycle is that it is a very mature economic and stock market cycle, and valuations are are very high. Uh, I mean, forecasting is dangerous, I think, at any point in the cycle. But you know, the the one phase where you might have a higher degree of confidence would be early bull market. You know, where unemployment rates are still high but coming down, valuations are still reasonable. Fed liquidity is still plentiful. We've got really none of that today. We have a very low unemployment rate. Some would say uh, we're at full employment. Valuations are historically uh, very high. We think second only to the uh, the tech bubble years uh, in terms of uh, of peak valuations. And uh, so we're we're reticent to make a let's say a full year forecast. But we do have a, a fairly high degree of confidence that we will see higher highs at least during the first half of the year, and it really just has to do with the internal strength of, of the market. And I think you know, animal spirits are uh, are sort of becoming rekindled here with more you know pro business uh, talk coming from uh, the incoming administration. I think you know that combination of uh, confidence uh, being rehabilitated coming up from from Pretty uh skeptical levels and uh, and just the action in the market it itself have us bullish for you know at least the first half of the year
1: Doug Ramsey, can you just broaden the uh, conversation a little bit by telling us about market breadth and what that's showing you
3: Sure uh, well we developed a pretty simple indicator just that uh, we tally each time the & p 500 makes a a new bull market high so the latest was Tuesday. And we look at uh, disparate indices and indicators like the New York Stock Exchange daily advance decline line, new high within the last week, Uh, Dow Transports, uh, small cap stocks, financials, various cyclical indices. I mean, all of these are also poking out to new all-time highs. And just, I mean, the history of bull market tops uh, going all the way back to the 1940s is it the final peak in the Dow and the S&P 500, the final peak in the blue chips, is actually a pretty lonely event where it's really just those two indices and very little else standing at a new high. So I've just got to believe in a bull market that's lasted almost eight years that we're going to have a topping process that is going to be, you know, spread out at a minimum over, you know, let's say four to six months.
2: So. Well, hold on, Doug. You know, one thing that I I noticed in your green book was that you said that rising rates aren't always a death knell. No. And this is a very interesting point. It flies in the face of some commentary that we've heard recently, Mm -hmm. uh, including double lines Jeff Gunlock coming out and saying that uh, if if Treasury yields keep rising to the degree that they have been uh, for a little bit longer, that's going to put pressure on the S&P 500. Why do you disagree?
3: Well, I, I think there's an offset. I mean, the fact that we're getting back to numbers and we're not there yet, but, you know, if we, if we break above the three-handle on the 10-year bond yield, I think there's going to be, of course, you know, that's increased competition for the stock market, but there's sort of a countervailing confidence effect that, hey, that's, that's a bond yield figure that sounds normal to me all of a sudden. And even if we get short rates, let's say above 1%, uh, I, I think, you know, there'll just be a sense that, hey, you know, the rate environment, the policy environment is being normalized, and I think there's confidence that goes along with that. And and even with this, in this cycle, I might add, we've already had a pretty impressive, it was an 18-month stretch of rising bond yields and rising stock prices from the middle of 12 to the end of 13. The 10-year bond yield went up 155 basis points, in the face of that, the S&P 500 went up 44% uh, since this bond yield rally started in the summer. The S&P is only up six or seven percent, uh, so there could be a ways to go. I'm sort of reticent to put a number on it. You know, where does uh, what's a high enough yield level to inflict some pain on the stock market? But I think it may be as much a, as a point higher from here. I mean, 350, 360. Uh, mm-hmm could could be a challenge so it i think it's a ways away
1: well doug ramsey uh, as you speak uh, the ten year yield uh, topping at two point six percent the dollar continues its strength against the euro one oh three seventy six also strength against the pound sterling at a one twenty three eighty four What does that tell you about the appetite for u s assets <laughs>
3: uh well it's it's Uh, strong. There's no question about that. I mean, the the dollar strength at some point, I mean, sometimes I wonder if that might be uh, a negative stock market trigger prior to the rise in rates. I mean, it's become very strong. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see the euro dropping into the 90s. uh, I mean, mid to low 90s over the next year.
1: Mid to low Uh, 90s for the euro dollar.
3: Yep. I just think when you look at the, uh, the strength of the U.S. economy, and, again, it's all relative. Uh, it hasn't been a great recovery, but it's certainly been far superior to what's been seen anywhere in Europe. So uh, a simple way to get Europe competitive, uh, shy of uh, the EU and the euro itself um, coming undone, may just to be to get that currency rate a lot lower. And, and they're benefiting already. Uh, you can see it in the performance of the European multinational stocks.
1: Well, we got to leave it there, but thanks very much. Doug Ramsey, chief investment officer of the Luthold Group, uh, based in Minneapolis, Uh I think that's a good headline, isn't it, that the euro dollar uh, might trade uh, in the 90s, maybe even in the low 90s over the next uh, six to 12 months.
2: That would be a huge game changer. Already Europe has seen uh, some advantages from the weaker euro with respect to uh, more trade and more exports. So this will be a very interesting dynamic in the year ahead.
1: We're trying to imagine what the effects of the United Kingdom's Brexit vote will have on wages, and here to tell us more is Mark Gilbert, Bloomberg View columnist, joining us from our London bureau. Mark Gilbert, thank you very much for being with us. I note that the pound right now trading at one twenty-four thirteen against the U.S. dollar, and there have been Treasury papers, I believe, from the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Bank of England, showing that. Britain could lose up to 66 billion pounds a year if it pursues the hard Brexit option. Tell us what's going on.
4: Well, we had the vote in June, the referendum. Brits decided they wanted to leave the European Union. And you can sum up the situation since then in one word. It's uncertainty. If you look at what the pounds are on a trade-weighted basis this year, it's down about 15% in total. It's rallied 7% from the October low. But... When you've got a weaker currency like that, what you end up with is important inflation. And if you look at all of the forecasts for what consumer prices are going to do next year, we are looking at a faster inflation rate. So you've got the Office for Budget Responsibility, an independent body here that kind of marks the government's homework. It says that the Bank of England's 2% inflation target will get met probably in the first quarter of next year. And then inflation will continue to rise, steadying out at about 2.5%. So that's a direct consequence of the weaker pound, which in turn has been sparked by this decision to leave the EU by Brexit.
2: You know, one thing that I'm struck by is that, you know, inflation has been the holy grail of central banks for years. All of a sudden now, the UK is getting it. But this seems to be bad inflation. It doesn't necessarily translate to higher wages. What are we seeing in terms of UK wages and uh, the, the ability for consumers to buy goods that are increasingly becoming more expensive?
4: Well, so far this decade, inflation has been bang on averaging 2% exactly at the Bank of England's inflation target. But in recent years, it's fallen off. If you look at what wages have done this decade, they've only been 1.8%. So Britons have effectively had a pay cut for for the past decade. Uh, That arguably is one of the sparks for for Brexit. You know, this argument that all of the benefits of economic growth have gone to capital rather than to labour. They lead into a bit of populism in in, in a lot of countries. And so arguably that's part of what the motivation was um, for voting Brexit. Uh, Wages, though, have not tended to, to move with inflation. And if you look at the forecast going forward, as I said, inflation expected to accelerate, but wages are expected to stagnate. And by the end of next year, the Office for Budget Responsibility thinks that inflation will, once again, be faster than wage growth and that people will be getting a pay cut again.
1: Mark, is there a debate about different sectors of the British economy? For example, those workers in the agricultural sector. There's a report that they might actually see wage increases.
4: There's certainly places where you're seeing labour shortages. And so if we close the door to immigration, which is one of the consequences of of, of Brexit, then you'll certainly see price pressures in the agriculture industry where a lot of immigrants work. If you look in the construction sector, uh, workers in there, plumbers, plasterers, they've been enjoying really, really good pay growth uh, for several years now because we still have a construction boom, uh, particularly in in the southeast of the country. Um, But those sectoral gains won't help the overall picture for wages according to the OBR um, and indeed there's a question as to how fast inflation the Bank of England will tolerate it says it will tolerate inflation over target for a while if its appetite for, for, that, for that faster inflation proves greater than people expect then the impact on wages could be even greater
2: so I'm trying to to understand this today the Bank of England decided to keep its interest rates uh, at a record low level um, if the BOE decides to raise rates uh more quickly than people are expecting in re- in response to some of this uh higher inflationary pressure will this cause the pound to appreciate significantly i mean is that uh is that under the bank of england's control even
4: well they, like like most central banks they say they don't target uh, the, the currency rate certainly the, the the European Central bank says the same uh, the Federal Reserve says the same if you look in the futures market there's about a 36 percent chance of higher interest rates by the end of next year so not even at 50 percent so the market is definitely expecting the Bank of England to stand pat through next year and that's in in line with its with its claim that it will it will allow faster inflation for a while to compensate for the slower consumer prices that we've seen uh, guessing currencies anyone's any uh, you can't make money guessing a currency I don't think Um, the pound historically whenever it's had a fall of this kind of magnitude it's tended to stay at that level uh, for quite a few years we had the the, in 1992 we had a similar collapse in the pound after we left the exchange rate mechanism pound weakness is something that I think that the economy is just going to have to cope with uh, for the rest of the year you know we had news this week Lego is going to raise the prices of plastic bricks by 5% uh, as a compensation for what they've seen in the weakness of the pound, And those kind of, of increases for imported goods, I think, are going to be something that we're going to see more of uh, as the months roll by.
2: Mark Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us. Mark Gilbert, Bloomberg View columnist coming to us from London, ground zero for Brexit and all of the uh, developments that are coming with respect to inflation wages and price increases. to imagine what is going to happen next year in the bond market. This is the big question, the big mystery. I want to bring in Eric Stein, who's going to solve this mystery for us. Eric Stein, co-director of Global Fixed Income at Eaton Vance. Uh, Yesterday, the Federal Reserve decided to raise interest rates by a quarter of percentage point. That everybody was expecting. What people were not expecting was that the Fed increased their projection uh, from two rate hikes next year to three rate hikes next year. So Eric, do you think that we are just going to see three rate Rate hikes next year, or do you think that there's even a possibility of po- even four? I,
5: I certainly think there's a possibility of four rate hikes. Uh, you know, I think what's interesting about yesterday is a couple things. First off, the dot plot almost never goes um, up, up, up in terms of rates. It always goes down. We Actually, we're debating this uh, in our Eaton Vance Global Macro Team research meeting today. There's actually been one time that one dot went up, if you go back to 2014, but generally dots come down. So now we saw the first dot wait, plot wait, wait, go wait. up. Just,
2: just, just, just backing up, yep. the, the Fed dots are the uh, individual Fed member projections for where uh, benchmark rates will be over time. So when people talk about the dot plot, they're talking about sort of uh, that projection, and it moved upwards, it moved forward from two uh, rate hikes, applying two rate hikes to three rate hikes last uh, yesterday. Yesterday, just Exactly. Just and okay. so
5: it moved up from two to three. Uh, what I was expecting was that it was gonna ha- that was going to happen, but at the March meeting, not here at the December meeting. So to me, that's very symbolic. And what Chairwoman Janet Yellen said when she was asked at her press conference was that some, maybe a few members, had incorporated the f- potential fiscal stimulus from the incoming Trump administration and other regulatory and tax policy changes that could be pro-growth, uh, as well as some things that could potentially be inflationary. But every Everyone hasn't incorporated that yet. So they, they Fed also raised their growth projection from 2 to 2.1. They lowered the unemployment projection from 4.6 to 4.5. Marginal changes. But if the growth and in inflation outlook picks up, as I think it will, and the markets are telling us that it will, I think the dots could also go up. So I think three, three rate hikes is certainly likely. Four is possible. Look, may, maybe the market can't take it. There's no guarantee that happens. But I think uh, four hikes is certainly on the table uh, in 2017.
1: Eric, some of those dots might might disappear in 2017 because they're not going to have the same members of the uh, FOMC, and indeed Janet Yellen's term, I believe, expires in February of 2018. Yep. So, what do you see in terms of any change in the disposition of the Fed?
5: So, I, I you know, there, I do think it's going to be very interesting to see how uh, the Trump administration fills those vacancies. That are there's a couple, I think, on the governor's side that are currently open. More will be open, uh, as you mentioned. Chair Yellen's term as chair ends in February of 18. Actually, her term as governor goes farther, but. Typically, I don't think it's ever happened that someone stayed on as chair when they're, um, um, when they've, uh, when they've, or stayed on as governor, I should say, when they lost their their chairship. So I do think uh, Trump will appoint at the margin, maybe more hawkish members. Um, Than you would have seen, let's say, under a Hillary Clinton administration. That being said, as much as Trump in the past has criticized uh, Yellen uh, for keeping rates low to boost the stock market, uh, you know, if we're going to spend more money and we're going to have more debt, uh, lower rates are, are are make that easier. So I wouldn't expect you know super hawkish members, but I would expect maybe more hawkish, more monetarist, less Keynesian members uh, appointed to the Fed uh, under a Trump administration.
2: You know, how dangerous is the possibility that right now the consensus in markets, is completely wrong that uh, that rates will potentially even not not benchmark rates but but treasury yields particularly the 10-year yield comes down in the first quarter of next year if you know, President-elect Trump's team doesn't necessarily come forward with specific plans or runs into some issues convincing Republican leadership in the House and Senate to come on board with him. What is the risk uh, for for a very serious uh, rally that could also spur a pretty serious sell-off in other markets? Yeah, so so it's certainly a
5: risk. Look, when when Trump got elected, which is now what five weeks ago, I said, look, the distribution of economic outcomes has widened. I think the modal outcome has gone up, but the distribution has widened. That's still you know, that still remains. Let's say he can't get those things passed. Let's say then we get a bunch of tweets and trade protectionism. <laughs> we and will others. definitely get a bunch and, of tweets. Uh, we'll no we'll definitely get a bunch of tweets, but we'll get tra- if we get trade protectionism and some other of his policies that I don't think are so strong that I think the baseline for the markets and myself is that those will be somewhat muted, then you could have – worse economic outcomes, you could see a rally in the bond market. I do think many of these policies, though, even some of the bad ones like trade protectionism, are inflationary. Uh, Some of the good ones that are pro-growth also might be inflationary. So I think we will get uh, somewhat of an inflationary impulse. And I think that's why the Fed moved from two uh, to three hikes
1: in their so-called dot plot. Eric Stein, thank you. Portfolio Manager, Co-Director of Global Fixed Income for Eaton Vance, helping to manage $300 billion of customer assets. He is based in Boston, home to Bloomberg 1200. Thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. All right. We are a Fed Day Plus One, and here to tell us more is Joe Davis. He is the Chief Global Economist for the Vanguard Group. Joe, thanks for coming into the studio. Uh, thanks you- for having me. Um, uh, so it, maybe you can just uh, explain a little bit about the Vanguard response to the rate decision, and then maybe connect that with what you see happening in 2017. Yeah, and then markets
6: as well. Oh, I, you know, So what, what we noted to clients, we, 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 we applauded Uh, the decision. Um, We were anticipating this year, Pim, that actually the Federal Reserve um, through the course of 2017 was actually going to be at least above 1%. Um, And so uh, what I think we saw yesterday was a little bit of uh, building confidence in in the outlook, something that I think that, quite frankly, was warranted six months ago. Um, and, and so I think, uh, I don't think we're going to see very hawkish activity by the Federal Reserve, but I think we have taken out at the margin this this, inf- this deflationary tail that we were concerned about. Okay, uh, so we might
2: have taken out the disinflationary, yeah. the deflationary tail, uh, but are we setting ourselves up for gangbusters growth, incredible inflation, a departure from the new normal? Is this the end of the bond bull market and the beginning of, you know, Clear sailing it's, ahead It's for, a great for point. Yields. So
6: paired with that, with those <laughs> comments, is I think we have to appreciate where where we should be, right? As, as you can best estimate that. And our estimate, is say, we're the 10-year treasury, which is a, a key benchmark.
1: 257 right now, we, 2.57. We
6: were, we were 2.50, as if you could measure that precisely, this time last year. And we haven't changed. So I, I, we were skeptical that the world, we, we, we believe the markets in the world, was too, the bond market was a little too pessimistic. By the summer, at the same time, you, we that,
1: do- you are being too pessimistic. No, but we all I'm not to be
6: the
2: careful. bond market. <laughs> yeah, I just but, like but bonds. But we got to be
6: careful not being let animal spirits get out of control. I mean, the equity market, if you if you do the math, is pricing in closer to 4% real GDP growth for 2017. I think that's highly unlikely. So I, I think true somewhere in between. I think we're actually closer to fair value if you look at, say, the shape of the yield curve and, and the treasury markets, credit markets. But- but, you know, so if we would see material greater move, I think we'd be careful.
2: Okay. You say if we see a material greater move, we should be mm. careful. I was actually just going to ask you, uh, Jeff Gunlock of yep. Double Capital, Capital came out and said, if you start to see much higher yields on the 10-year, even up to 3%, that's going to start to pressure some of the riskier assets. Do you agree?
6: Yes. I mean, I think even cl- before to look at the, at, at the 3% on the 10-year treasury would be look at the U.S. dollar. I mean, we're already at a point with which uh, I think we'll we'll be hard-pressed to see a further acceleration in the manufacturing sector, which, again, the global economy was rebounding from its lull before the election. So I think if you can take that into account, if we see another 10% rise, say, in the dollar versus a basket of currencies, we will see you know further pressure on some of the import prices and on some of the growth. So I think there's a natural limit to how far we can go. And at some point in 2017, we could very likely test what that limit is. I, I think it would be shocking to see a further acceleration across the board in the financial assets that we've seen over the past 30 days.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned financial assets because this headline coming from the Federal Reserve that big banks are 70 Billion dollars short of the debt needed to weather failure. Maybe talk a little bit about the financial sector and the increase in rates and what this means for their future.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think you know if you take a broader step back, and uh, you know, I think one of the, actually the, the hallmarks of the U.S. economy, one one of our thesis for why the U.S. economy was going to remain resilient over the past several years was was the repair of the balance sheets. I mean, on the consumer side, household side, clearly in the banking. Sector, which gets other parts of the world, we have not seen this similar progress. So, that aside, you know, obviously the flattening of the yield curve before, recent, before more recently was putting some pressure. Um, and so, it's nice to see some steepness in the yield curve that clearly we've seen in the financial market and equity prices. Um, so, but again, it's not all smooth sailing. So I think in one sense, you know, I think, I think history will show this, this very strong concern of new normal and stagnation was a little bit overdone. At the same time, we're starting to enter the world of some talking about a cyclical strong recovery, and I think we have been burned over the past four or five years. And I think there are still some structural forces at work. And so I think the truth is somewhere in between. I think right now in the markets, we sit right at that sort of fulcrum. And so we just – which is fine. It's good that we're more balanced, um, but we can't get too carried away.
2: Uh, Earlier this week, the Treasury Department's Office of Financial Research Mm -hmm. came out with a report talking about uh, how concerned they were about corporate debt in the US, the explosion mm-hmm. of the market, which has increased in size by more than 50% since the end of 2008. And they were talking about how uh, while big financial firms are stress tested, mm-hmm. the mutual funds and the uh, pensions and the insurers, which own a much greater proportion of the debt sure. today than they used to, are not stress tested. Do you mm-hmm. think that the corporate debt market uh, holds some concern or poses some kind of a significant threat to financial stability?
6: Really not. I mean, I, I think, you know, particularly if we're going to talk about, you know, from the asset management industry, I mean, this concern around um, them being systemically important or having that sort of risk in our minds, just, it's just overstated. I mean, in, ma- in many ways, it's a pass-through entity. I mean, you have to look at the the mismatch, if there is any, between assets and liabilities. In that sense, it's not the case. I mean, we have seen deterioration in corporate health, right, um, outside of the financial, a greater increase in, in some debt, although part of that has to be p- compared to the C&I lending which we've seen so far, this has been a financing remix.
1: Commercial and industrial. Yeah, mix. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we
6: have this, excuse me for the, for the nomenclature, but yeah, so there's some of that's been a refinancing, which in the zero bound, very low interest rate environment, I think has been natural. You know, our biggest concern on the corporate debt market has actually been overseas in the emerging markets. You know, non-financial private sector debt has increased significantly um, in, in various, you know, government agencies around the world and think tanks have called that out. So that that's, if there's a pressure point in terms of corporate leverage, it's the emerging markets that I think, you know, so, you know, we, we just have to uh, monitor.
2: Well, and to that point, I mean, the dollar, is, as you talked yeah. about earlier, is the strongest that it's been since two thousand and three. Mm-hmm. Uh, if this is not the time when emerging markets corporates are going to feel pain, when is?
6: Yeah, and you know, so yes, I think we're and we've seen that already in some repricing. I think you know, however, and in, in the market, I think gets some of this, um, uh, but it, but it may be lost over the next six months as we have continued prospects for potential continue uh, U.S. dollar strength. Is that you know? Emerging markets today are not emerging markets of the late 1990s. I mean, there's one or two potentially that you that you could zero in on, but everything from foreign reserves to to, to some better balance sheet measures and, and 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 level of certain financing, it's different. And so at least they're not all in the same bag. And so I don't think we're going to see a set of rolling crises, um, but we will see some pressure points.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. This is a very interesting time, you. and you had a lot of interesting insights.